This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and welcome to this very special Valentine's themed episode. We're going to do two very romantic movies at both ends of the spectrum, I think. Firstly, we're going to talk about the 2001 slasher movie Valentine, directed by Jamie Blanks. And then after that, we're going to go Hallmark. We're going for All Things Valentine directed by Gary Harvey. First up on this episode of HD Movie Podcast, we're looking at a movie which celebrates its 21st anniversary this year. It's 2001's Valentine, directed by Jamie Blanks. So Valentine was released theatrically on the 2nd of February 2001. It's loosely based on a novel by Tom Savage, but the plot is completely different from the plot of the novel. It was distributed by Warner Brothers. And the plot of the movie, I'm going to refer to a synopsis by Derek O'Kane on IMDb to tell you a little bit more detail of what it's about. It is the late 1980s. At a high school dance, young nerdish looking Jeremy Melton is spurned and insulted by every girl he asks to dance, except one named Dorothy. Later, they start making out under the bleachers until a group of bullies discover them and Dorothy says Jeremy attacked her. The boys further humiliate Jeremy by violently assaulting him and pulling off his clothes. About 12 years later, those same girls are in their 20s and enjoying the dating scene, but Jeremy has mysteriously disappeared. After one of the girls, Shelley has a date with an arrogant loser, she is savagely murdered in her medical school's autonomy lab by a tall, sinister man dressed in a dark coat and wearing a cherub mask. Just before her death, Shelley received a threatening Valentine's Day card. The other girls soon start receiving similar cards shortly after, and one at a time they start dying violently. When police inform them that Jeremy Melton has not been seen or heard from for many years, Dorothy speculates that he may have had plastic surgery and worked out to change his appearance. Kate has recently found herself a new boyfriend, but Dorothy suspects he may in fact be Jeremy, using his new looks to get close to the girls who spurned him so many years before and seeking revenge. Yeah, not bad synopsis that. I think it probably gives away a little bit, but not too much. I remember seeing this in the cinema. I actually went and watched it in a theatre. And at the time, I was not impressed one little bit by this movie. Probably because of one plot point in it. It's the plot point in which the killer has a nosebleed after they kill everybody. And... At the time, I thought, this is such a rip-off of a film called Alone in the Dark, which is a Jack Shoulder movie, which came out in the early 80s. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it, Track Down Alone in the Dark. At that point, I thought, 
I know how this is going to finish. I know exactly what the last scene of this movie is going to be. And I shall be extremely disappointed if it ends that way. And it did. And I was just like, oh, fuck this movie. When I came out of the cinema, it's like, no, it's, it's a worthless piece of crap, this. Because I was one step ahead of it all the time. I think the intervening years have softened my stance on this. I think it's a much better movie than I initially gave it credit for. It's quite a decent slasher, to be perfectly honest. And it's got some good characterisation in it. So I had a very different view of this film uh, to yourself. I came to it probably around the time it was released. Um, not necessarily 2001, maybe a bit later, 2002 or three. It had aired on Sky Movies, so that's how I watched it. And at that time, I had such a thirst for watching any kind of horror movie. So whatever it was, especially slashes, I would put it on regardless of quality. I have quite a funny story about it. So I was watching it on my own in my room late at night in the dark, having good, quite a good time watching it. And my mum realises that I'm watching this inappropriate for my age film because she is coming on the scene where Denise Richards is pouring the wax over the guy and tying him up. Yeah. So she abruptly makes me turn this film off and <laughs> then she goes back to bed. I give it five minutes and I put the movie back on because I was like, there's no way that I've sat through this movie and not going to find out who the killer is. That is not going to happen. I'm going to carry on watching it. And I did. Um, I can completely see why you would have been disappointed at the time. I think for me, because I was really young, I kind of accepted it and I've got like this nostalgic fondness for it. And on a rewatch, because I was a bit nervous going back to it, I thought, oh, am I going to really enjoy this now? But do you know what? I did. And I think it is an underrated slasher gem from the post-Scream era. Yeah, I think probably I was taking too much into it when I saw it at the cinema because it was post-Scream and I was expecting to see something a bit smarter and a bit more self-referential. And I was just presented with a fairly straightforward slasher movie, all with it some strong female characters and a half-decent mystery at the core of it. But I think it was in that kind of... I'm not even going to say elevated because I hate elevated horror as a term. But it was that sort of period where slashers were trying to do a little bit more. And this one, at the time, I just thought, oh, it's a studio thing. It isn't that gory. It's got some fairly telegraphed jump scares. And I just didn't have a good time. And I'm not really sure why. I think probably the Alone in the Dark thing just got in the way of everything. Because I knew where they were going to take it with that trope of the killer having the nosebleed i've seen it many times since and it's a whole lot better than a lot of slasher movies there are so many slasher movies that are just cookie cutter and you kind of go with them and they're all right they're entertaining enough but they don't really head in any directions you don't expect at least with this one you've got some quite sardonic quips about dating and the characters are all pretty well drawn even if they're not the most likable they are interesting characters and it's focusing on the female characters more than the male. The male ones are kind of pushed to the back. Even David Boreanaz, he's kind of first building this because he was coming off the back of Buffy and Angel at the time and he's prominently displayed in the cast member. I think Denise Richards is first built, but then it's David Boreanaz. But even his character doesn't dominate the proceedings at all. Definitely. Jamie Blanks um, had come off the back of Urban Legend at the time, which again, in my opinion, is another strong post-Scream slasher. It's another one that I have a lot of fondness for. 
and he didn't really want to take this down the same route as like the kind of overly meta angle that Scream was. He wanted to play it a bit more straight, but he could not resist using the line, he's no angel, but he's not a killer. <laughs> it's super cheesy, and it's very much um, a snapshot of the time period this movie was made, and it is incorporating post-Scream meta humour, but doing it in a much more subtle way. But just having that kind of like wink to the audience, which was quite fun. So yeah, upon reflection with this film, I do quite see it as a feminist horror film because all the lead female characters, they, you know, hold their own. They do not take shit off any of the male characters. And that even includes Denise Richards, who is um, playing Paige Prescott, which I'm guessing the surname is a reference to Scream there. Um, I would have thought so, yeah. (laughs) And she's meant to be this kind of really desired um, sexual woman. And this really creepy cop comes on to her and she really puts him in his place. And you don't expect that because you just expect her to be this like brainless airhead type character. And she's not. None of them are. They're all very attractive, but, you know, they're clever, they've been educated, and it's basically they're just paying for a past mistake now. I mean, it is obvious and it isn't. I suppose I think on a first watch, I I didn't really click, because, again, I was young, I didn't really click who Jeremy Melton was going to be. And it does work because he, when you see the kid at the start of the movie, you don't expect that kid to grow up to be David Boreanaz. <laughs> so... But the other casting for the female characters as kids in it is so on point. Like, you would, you know, you'd be forgiven to think, like, they are the same person. It was such, like, so well casted, I thought. The female characters all have their own agency, which is pretty good for that sort of time. I mean, I know that now, and I don't even want to use the word work, because, again, that's kind of a pejorative term. But I think slasher movies, even back then, had had some way to go in portraying strong female characters. Scream is obviously a prime example of strong female leads. But again, you'd still got slasher movies that were just women running around screaming, that sort of slasher. This one isn't. I mean, it's got a lot of smart female characters who, like you say, are just paying for this past mistake. And the fact that they get bumped off by the killer, it's not really down to them ignoring the rules of the horror movie yes at some points they have to be trapped on their own but they're not presenting themselves as targets they are killed off in places where they would normally feel safe so it doesn't have this air of that they're putting themselves in the way of the killer mostly that the killer will show up where they least expect it there's a really good scene in an art exhibition where one of the girls is shot by several arrows you know valentine cupid there's lots of sort of self-referential stuff in terms of the script that however they've treated jeremy melton at the start it ties into how they die one of them says that they'd rather be boiled alive and there's a there's a thing with hot water you'll know when you see the movie anyway so it does kind of have fun with the writing and it has fun with the audience because it plays around with expectations It throws a few red herrings into the mix as well. It tries to make you think various other people are the killer along the way. At the end of it, it's probably a little bit of a twist too far because it expects you to swallow something that it doesn't really work. If you think about it too hard, it posits somebody else as the killer. And whereas the motive 
is reasonably sound. When you start thinking about what they would have needed to do to be in the same places as everybody and set everything up, it kind of falls apart. But if you just go with it and just enjoy it as a slasher movie, it's absolutely fine. It's a lot more fun than a lot of other slasher movies. And the fact that it was a kind of a bigger budget movie, I think it was only about $10 million, but it's a much bigger budget movie than most slashers. And it was released by Warner Brothers. You'd expect something fairly asinine and fairly sort of pulled back from the normal R-rated horror stuff. But some of the kills are actually quite nasty. Without being overly bloody, conceptually they are quite nasty. Yeah, so the film was meant to be much gorier than what we saw on screen. Um, However, it had to be scaled back due to the hysteria and panic surrounding violence in the media in the wake of Columbine. And obviously many horror movies of this era became affected. I think we spoke about it um, before with Scream 3, for example. Yeah. And there has been talk amongst fans wanting a director's cut of this film to reinstate all the gorier um, and more violent scenes, but Warner Brothers haven't shown any interest in releasing it, unfortunately. But I think this movie is littered with some amazing death scenes throughout it. You've got at the beginning with uh, Catherine Heigl, the, the morgue chase death scene um that's pretty eerie in tone and it gets quite vicious as it builds up she's hiding in a body bag the killer is just going around just stabbing all these bags trying to find her and you're just thinking oh my god this is this is horrendous and then of course there's a scene where someone gets killed in a shower gets like the glass through their throat and i i said to you at the time that i was like reminded me of like Kajalo a little bit mm. so um like something that would happen in a film like tenebra or something like that so that was quite cool. Of course, there's the infamous hot tub death scene, which again is pretty mean-spirited in its execution. So I really like it as a movie. I like the characters, I like the plot, and I enjoy the death scenes as well. Going back to the ending, it is an ambiguous ending to a point. I think that I think this is the reason so many people have a problem with it and why it could be classed as a bit disappointing is because it's so abrupt. And I remember feeling that at the time, I remember wanting more, and I still do. I think because you haven't got that whole Billy Loomis um, like motive explanation going on in this, it's just sort of, this is the killer, this is the twist, we're done. We're not going to yeah. give you any more, we're not going to elaborate on it. So I think that's slightly disappointing. It was originally going to be more clear cuts. So I think I will go into spoiler territory now just to explain things a bit more. So again, if you haven't seen the film, Go and watch it and come back to this point in the podcast if you got this far. The original ending was going to have Dorothy revealed as the killer and Jeremy Melton as the hero. This then got changed. And then there was apparently a deleted scene where Jeremy Melton is seen setting Dorothy up because obviously it's kind of clear that he has done that to make um, Kate think that she's the killer. Yeah. It's been her all along and he can play that hero. And then there is a fan theory apparently going around that Dorothy was working independently from Jeremy Melton as a killer. So that could have been quite interesting. But then is it that plausible? They both kind of wear the same type of costume, same mask. It's, I don't know. So I just think I just wanted a little bit more from it. And I think it would have been interesting to see her find out that it was him all along, like how what her reaction to that would have been. But it just kind of ends and... It kind of ends on a downer because you think, is she going to be in danger? Yeah, I mean, in that way, leaving the audiences hanging is quite fun. 
even though the explanation or lack of explanation at the end means that it all feels a bit muddled. The cherub costume is quite a memorable one. It's quite a good look for the killer. The whole thing about the fact that how come Dorothy is in the cherub costume at the end, but she's not the killer. That's where the confusion lies, because you're right. Would they both have had the same costume? It's highly unlikely. But all of a sudden, the cherub turns up at the end. She gets killed. It's revealed to be Dorothy. And then all of a sudden, it's revealed to be Jeremy. And that kind of, it's like, it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And that doesn't really work. It's setting itself up for a potential sequel that never happened as well. It's just a little bit disappointing after what's gone before. But what's gone before is actually pretty good. I don't think it needs to be any gorier. I think the kills stand up as they are. I think they work without it being full of blood and guts. The only one that I think doesn't work is when the main character finds the detective's head in the pond. It's the worst fake head you'll ever see. (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't think that aged well at all. Yeah, I think it might have been better if they'd gone down the whole screen route with a bit of a showdown, a bit of Jeremy claiming that Dorothy's the killer, her saying don't trust him, and a bit of a showdown, and um, Kate stuck in the middle. I think that would have just um, elevated the whole ending a little bit more. But that said, like I still think it, it's a gem. I think it, it holds up. It has some great moments in it. Um, another favourite scene for me is when they receive the chocolates bite into them and there's maggots it's just like oh so gross and stuff and I do love the um valentine's cards as well they're so creative and it's like you think oh this is nice and then it's got this horrible like threatening message one is roses are red violets are blue and then they open it and it said it'll um take dental records to identify you (laughs) so it's pretty cheesy yeah um in how it does it but at the same time quite unnerving so I really do enjoy that the movie was heavily panned when it came out it wasn't well received in the slightest it was criticized for being too similar to many of the 80s slashes that came before it and even jamie blanks had thought it was going to be a reboot of my bloody valentine when he received the script but of course it wasn't but um my bloody valentine then was remade in 2009 with jensen apples as we know a film i quite enjoy as well <laughs> I think it's developed more of probably a little bit of a cult following over the years, but I don't think it's that highly talked about. When people talk about like the 90s and early 2000s slasher films, I think it gets overlooked quite a lot. I think Scream tends to overshadow pretty much everything of that era. It's the one series of horror films that everybody looks back on, and rightly so in many ways, but... There are a lot of other decent little slashes that came around. I mean, Urban Legend, I think that is underrated. Again, yeah. it's that sort of thing where it was it was under the shadow of a much bigger franchise. And I think it got missed at the time and people were expecting something that it wasn't. But like Urban Legend, Valentine is a movie that if you, if you go back and watch it again, it, it rewards another viewing because... Certainly in my case, Valentine has got better with each watch because you can appreciate the craft in it, not the actual craft of the movie, the actual craft <laughs> of the cinema work. And the fact that it's more witty than I probably gave it credit for to start with. It's really well paced. You can't get bored because the action goes along at a fair lick. It does have that Scream-esque thing about major cast member gets killed before the titles, but a lot of stuff decided to do that after Scream. So not going to 
come down on it for that. The opening sequence is very tense and the film does have a little bit of a job recovering from that because the opening four or five minutes are so tense that you think, oh God, where's it going to go from here? Well, it's got to go somewhere different. It can't do that for the entire movie. But it keeps the interest. It's funny. It's quite scary in places, but it's not going to give you nightmares. The cast are all absolutely great in it. Personally, Marley Shelton, one of my favourites. I did mention in the Scream episode that um, any movie that kills off Marley Shelton's got to answer to me. Well, spoiler alert, Marley Shelton does not get killed off in this, although it's left hanging at the end as to exactly how much peril she is in. Denise Richards, I mean, Denise Richards, people take the piss out of Denise Richards in various movies. She's really good in this. There's nothing wrong with her performance in this at all. I mean, the rest of the cast, absolutely great. I think that I was completely wrong on first watch of this. I think my love of Alone in the Dark clouded my judgment to the point where I couldn't give it a fair throw. Whereas now I am going to say that I was wrong. Valentine is a pretty decent movie. Glad to hear it. And all the discussion of the tense opening sequence brings me to um, a fact. So Catherine Heigl was popular at the time due to appearing in the teen sci-fi series Roswell on the WB. Um, I was a fan of that show at the time and um, we watched it probably about 10 years ago now. I still really enjoy it. And she has disowned Valentine. She absolutely hates this movie. Why? When she when she received the script, she didn't even read the full script. She only read her scenes. And then she was really unimpressed with the final cut of the film. That, that That's what she said. But we know that Catherine Heigl is a very outspoken person, and especially in how she felt about the film Knocked Up, which kind of elevated her career a little bit as well in mainstream movies. So, yeah, she's not afraid to speak her mind, but no, she, she hates this movie. But again, maybe she's just not a horror fan, and at the time this was just something to get a leg up in the acting ladder. Yeah, possibly. I mean, Knocked Up, I can see why she would complain about that, because... The portrayal of her character isn't the most positive, and I guess when she saw the final cut of that, yeah, yeah, I think she's probably got reason to be slightly aggrieved by that. This one, she's dead after the first sort of ten minutes, but she's really good at the point where she up to the point where she does get killed off. The dating scene is very funny. It's established that she won't take any crap from anybody like the rest of the cast. So there's nothing wrong with her role in the movie, and the rest of it kind of takes the ball and runs with it in the same way so I think Catherine's been a little bit harsh on this movie although it's her opinion if she wants to say it's rubbish it's rubbish I don't think it's rubbish I think it's got a lot more style and a lot more quality than well both me initially and Catherine have given it credit for Absolutely, and of course she went down the route of appearing in a lot more rom-coms, so maybe that's her genre over horror, which is fair enough. So going back as well to um, another criticism that the movie faced was it was criticised for um, the fact Jeremy Melton was only exacting revenge on the girls who had rejected him at the prom and not the boys who had beaten him up, but allegedly in an early version of the script, the main characters do some research and they discover that the head of the male bullies had mysteriously died, so implying that Jeremy Melton's killing spree had already begun off screen. I think they should have left that in. I think that was something would have like boosted the whole story to a point, added in more suspense as well, just knowing that this person's been out there um, doing this for so long. Mm. So 
yeah, I, I think it's a shame that they didn't keep that in because that might have moved away from that criticism about um, not being female-friendly enough, I guess. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think that is a, a valid criticism of the movie because without that balance with him not going after the male characters, you leave yourself open to the fact that it could be seen as being a bit misogynistic. On the flip side of that, how many slasher movies have some guy menacing a group of women? Like, it's basically 90-odd percent of slasher movies. This one takes a little bit more of a focus on a particular group of women, so you don't get all that many guys die. Although, some guys die in the in the pursuit of all these women. The, the creepy neighbour who gets hit with an iron several times, which is quite nasty. I mean, the detective succumbs. It's the very bad fake head of the detective, but <laughs> but he does die. Uh, so it's not like he's not killing any male characters off. But part of the plot of Valentine is that it could be a number of characters of which you're probably going to get the male ones. So they've got to also keep some of the male characters alive because you think, well, maybe it's the sort of, it's Campbell, the kind of sleazy guy who's trying to chip his way into various women's trust funds because he's just a bit of a grifter and so you've got to keep people like that around at least for the first two acts because otherwise you're limiting the suspect pool yeah absolutely so what we like to talk about with movies on this podcast is what could have been with casting so with this one tara reed was up for the role of dorothy okay um yeah. And she'd obviously appeared in Urban Legends, so she'd already worked with Jamie Blanks. And then Jennifer Love Hewitt was up for the role of Paige Prescott. So I could have seen that working. Um, obviously, she was quite well known for Party of Five and obviously being the final girl in I Know What You Did Last Summer. And that is the only other post-Scream slasher series that I remember being as popular as Scream at the time. Yeah. Good extra casting, actually. I mean, Tara Reid would have been pretty good in that role. Jennifer Love Hewitt, I can see her in the Denise Richards part as well. It's not like other casting choices where you just think, oh, that would never work. It just goes to show that the casting process was pretty accurate to get the characters right. And, and even the second choices were pretty good as well. So I've got no qualms about the casting in this one, either the, either the actual casting or the potential casting. Yep, and I think it was Luke Wilson and Jeremy Sisto that were considered for the Adam Carr slash Jeremy Melton role. So again, I could probably see that working too. Yeah, Jeremy Sisto in particular, because Jeremy Sisto's got that quality. He's kind of quite sweet, but there's something dark going on as well. I mean, I've got no problems with David Boreanaz in the role because he's got that he's got that slightly dangerous side to him, but he's also quite dependable. So, which I think he brought from Angel and Buffy. So, it, again, you know, the casting, pretty decent. I think that they've got everything nailed down in terms of who they wanted to play the various roles. This is one thing you can't level at Valentine. You can't look at it and say the performances are crap because they're not. They're way above what you would expect for a slasher movie. Definitely. And there was enough kind of big names in it at the time to pull audiences in especially with Dave Boreanaz and Catherine Heigl um, and, of course, Denise Richards as well. So, yeah, with Dave Boreanaz, I felt sometimes that he was dressed as if he'd just come off the set of Angel, and I think that is quite true because he only had a limited time to shoot the movie as well. I think he was on set for something like 10 days, so 
they didn't have him around enough to do more with his character but mm. that said I think you know he does a really good job and yeah I suppose if you're used to him as that kind of anti-hero in Angel it's quite interesting to you know see him as more of a psycho in this so I think that was uh, pretty good Again, another thing I like about this movie is it's a bit retro um, now, as you say, it's 21 years old and it was made in the pre-Tinder age. I think if it was made now, it would all be about the dating apps and the catfishing and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's nice that it's a bit more old school in its approach. Yeah, the speed dating sequence is really fun. It's heightened and the comedy is played for sort of the most laughs it can get out of it. So you've got these horrendous dates that they're all having to come to terms with but it's just part of the general fun of the movie there's kind of a i mean i won't say it's kind of winking at you this movie as it's going along but i don't think you can take it all that seriously either i think it's meant to be a fairly throwaway slasher that you can enjoy and then just forget about and there's nothing wrong with that at all you know not every movie has to be this masterpiece of thinking you sometimes you just want to see somebody in a cherub costume stalking people which probably says more about me than it does about the movie <laughs> but uh, yeah i really did enjoy re-watching valentine i came into it thinking well is it going to be a bit of a plod because i hadn't seen it for a few years but i was pretty hooked i wasn't checking my watch i wasn't checking my phone so i think that's a pretty good indicator of how good a movie is if you're watching it at home yeah, absolutely. I would describe it as a bit of a sleepover movie. I could imagine like kids in the early 2000s watching it for a late night scare amongst yeah. friends or like me watching it on my own in the dark because it was on Sky Movies. Fair That's enough. how I found most things. <laughs> Actually, what, so... I will, what I will say is the soundtrack is absolutely cracking on this movie. It's a brilliant soundtrack. Any soundtrack that's got Snake River Conspiracy on it is a good soundtrack. I'm going to look it up on Spotify to see if it's there, so I might have a, a more detailed listen to the soundtrack. So the original DVD and VHS release um, by Warner Home Video was in 2001, in the July, so just a few months after it um, hit theatres. And then more recently, in 2019, Screen Factory did release a brand new Blu-ray of the film. So I, I haven't sought that out myself, but I might check to see what extras they might have. And I believe the movie is available to rent on Amazon Prime at the moment. I have the original DVD. I'm so old. And when you sent me the screenshot of that DVD, I was like, oh, wow, it's one of those. It's kind of the one with the um, black clasp down yeah. the side and you open it up and then has it got the list of the scenes? It has, yeah. <laughs> oh, old school DVDs, gotta love it. So IMDb basically rates this 4.9 out of 10. I think it needs more love than that. Oh, sorry, IMDb, it's better than that. And then Rotten Tomatoes has a 12% tomato meter and 33% audience score. I just don't agree with any of this. I think this movie is at least a 6 out of 10. It's not my favourite slasher of all time, but I enjoy it on every rewatch. I think it has aged quite well. I don't have a problem with this film at all, and I probably will keep rewatching it for the rest of my life. Yeah, it works. It isn't a tremendous piece of art. It's not going to be the best slasher movie you've ever seen. But it's decent, it's entertaining. You're not going to be bored watching this movie. It zips along, it provides all the entertainment you want, it's got some fairly gruesome kills, it's got some laughs in it, it's got really good performances in it. It's absolutely fine. I don't get the hate for this movie. 
and this is this is speaking to somebody who really did hate the movie when he first saw it so so maybe that's it maybe it's the first watch but i really have come to a, a the conclusion that valentine is actually one of the better slasher movies out there there really is not an awful lot wrong with it so 12 percent critics rating i mean come on there's worse out there than that and yeah. believe me we have covered that if yeah. you've been listening to us for a while you all know we have delved into some absolute shit on this podcast <laughs> and valentine is not one of them so it's valentine's day coming up you know it's the perfect movie to watch no excuses i think it's my favorite valentine themed movie yeah and i'll go out and say that yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's not just a, a time for flowers and walks in the rain it's also a time for revisiting your most loved slashy movies so you know what could be more romantic than popping valentine in the dvd player and if you're gonna eat a box of chocolates while watching it just check for maggots first yeah something to live your life by i think that After the horror of Valentine, it's the horror of Hallmark as we delve into the second movie of our selection. It's 2016's All Things Valentine. Of course, for our Valentine's themed episode, we could not avoid Hallmark. So here it is, everybody. So All Things Valentine was a made-for-TV movie directed by Gary Harvey, who um, is also known for directing many of the Christmas Hallmark movies. And it aired as the second of five original films in Hallmark's 2016 Countdown to Valentine's Day lineup. Other titles in the lineup include Data's Handbook, Appetite for Love, Valentine Ever After, and Anything for Love. I have not seen any of those movies to the best of my knowledge, but we're not here to talk about those. We're here to talk about all things Valentine. So here is a synopsis from IMDb, direct from the Hallmark mouth itself. Avery, a blogger with a string of disappointing Valentine's days, is ready to give up on love when she meets handsome veterinarian Brendan. When Avery finds out Brendan blames his recent breakup on her blog and is the one leaving her angry comments, she begins to question whether the bond they began to build is a true love story or yesterday's news. Well, it does fit into ambitious women romantic complications yet again. Avery is kind of a blogger but also works for a newspaper called the Portland Banner. So I was kind of thinking, oh, we might get some shots of Portland at the very least. Uh, you don't get many shots of Portland. I think this movie was mostly made in Vancouver as a lot of these movies are. So having been to Portland and thinking, oh, see some locations, you don't really get to see a lot of the city. But I guess it's setting it in a different city than your usual romantic locations of New York or maybe LA. So you get a slightly different setting. You still get the same old stuff, though. It's a career woman who is thrown by some... I mean, I'm not even going to say it's like impossibly amazing guy because... In this one, yes, he's a vet and he does very charitable things and he's very nice to animals, obviously, and he's a nice guy at work, but he is a bit of a dick. 
to be perfectly honest. At the start, he's broken up with by his girlfriend at the time because she writes to Avery. Avery is the um, coach, in inverted commas. She's consult the coach. It's dating advice. So Brendan's girlfriend writes up and says, you know, this guy's not paying attention. He isn't really kind of involved in the relationship. What should I do? Avery says, oh, just dump him. So she does. And then he gets a bit of a bee in his bonnet and starts writing all these hateful things to her, saying that like her advice is not worth the email it's written on. And you can kind of see where this is going, because Avery and Brendan will get together and start falling for each other. But there is this elephant in the room that, well, neither of them realises it's there, but at some point it will come out that Brendan is the one who's been slagging her off. Because Avery isn't actually known. The coach's ID is kept secret so nobody knows who's writing these things and one of the plot points in the movie is that do they reveal who she is and it's that kind of well i'm not going to say suspense because there's no suspense in this movie at all it's all my movie so if you're worried about getting overly involved and invested in this movie you won't having said that it's better than quite a lot of the hallmark movies that we've covered because at least it has some vaguely interesting subplots there's another romantic subplot about a girl who works at the cafe and one of brendan's friends which i mean prue who works at the cafe seems to have the most interesting backstory of the entire cast and of course they don't delve into that at all prue is just this person in the background who every so often they think oh yeah let's go back to see what prue's doing with brendan's hopeless mate who is an absolute knobhead (laughs) oh my god so the scene where he presents Prue with this massive Valentine's teddy bear and this huge bunch of flowers and a card, and it's just absolutely terrible. It's the most cringiest Valentine's Day gifts. And if a bloke ever did that to me, presented me with that, I would have just basically asked him to leave the coffee shop because who would who would want that? He obviously wasn't like written as a character who read women very well, but one of these films actually well written. It's true, yeah. Uh, If I was Prue, or if I was somebody in the shop, because he's gone from basically zero to, like, giving her the most Valentine's presents he possibly can do. So if I was sitting there having a coffee and he did this, I mean, they they end up applauding him. But I would have gone, no, Prue, run! Run for your life! This guy's a complete psycho! What's he doing? Run, Prue! So we're obviously talking about this very minor character, Prue, here, and obviously these are not the main characters in this movie. Interestingly, at the beginning, um, the opening scene is Avery walking down the road with this bunch of, like, Valentine's balloons, again, more gaudy Valentine's kind of iconography going on there. And she approaches her boyfriend, she's, like, smiling, and then sees him make out with this other woman. So, basically, we've avoided the whole shitty boyfriend trope. We've just got that out of the way to begin with, so... Avery's pretty much single until she meets um, Brendan at the vet because obviously the contrived subplot is she has this really cute dog and I just wanted to say props to the dog. He was a great character, probably the best in this movie. He's a bit unwell, so of course that is the catalyst for Avery and Brendan to meet. And then um, we find out that Brendan has a girlfriend called McKenna who also works in the coffee shop with Prue because, of course, there's a coffee shop. So we have more of the... um, It's kind of subverted the shitty boyfriend trope to, like, shitty girlfriend trope. So McKenna is just a really irritating character 
she's having a nice meal with Brendan and just because it's not Valentine's Day, she's moaning about it, like moaning that they're not doing anything special. They're out for a meal in quite a posh restaurant. I mean, what more does the woman bloody want? They're drinking some nice um, red wine and then she's got this whole thing about, oh, she was hoping to be married and having kids, like three kids by the age of 30, which um, I remember your response to me for that was like, that's very bunny boiler. It is, because, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having targets. But if you go up to somebody, regardless of whether you're a, a man or a woman, if you're saying, well, by 30, I need to be in a marriage and I need to have had three kids. It's like, whoa, I'll hold on a minute there. Like, you know, <laughs> just put the brakes on, especially if you're not in a serious relationship. It does seem that they're kind of in the throes of it getting more serious. But there's nothing in that sequence to suggest that they're going to have any sort of commitment at that point. But I guess with with all these Hallmark movies, you know, they're trying to cram things into a shorter time frame. So people do fall for each other in a couple of seconds. And it goes from the fact that they've just been dating and then people do get married almost instantly in these movies because you've got to cram it in in 90 minutes. It's good in the way that, like you said, it, it inverts the shitty relationship. It also gets the crappy boyfriend out of the way without having to have that awkward sequence 10 minutes in where the boyfriend turns up and behaves like a complete ball sack for like five minutes so that you think, well, she's got to dump him. It avoids quite a lot of the usual Hallmark tropes, which makes it a bit more entertaining. Now, I'm not saying that this is the best rom-com I've ever sat through, but it didn't want to make me twist my own brain out either. I was going with it, and I think the performances are usually a bit heightened let me just say i'm not going to say the acting's terrible in all my movies it's of a certain type but i think sarah rafferty she's been in lots of tv series i think she's in suits and she's been in that for a long time and i think sarah rafferty kind of knows the game and pitches her performance accordingly so it's not that kind of fingernails down the blackboard that you can get with this sort of thing so she brings a bit more class i think than you would normally get in this sort of movie speaking of class we have to cover the dance class that happens oh, in this movie. Of course, there is a dance class. I mean, in these movies, so I was just listening down the tropes. Obviously, I've mentioned the coffee shop. There's the Learn to Dance by Valentine's Day class, which Avery and Brendan attend. But it doesn't really look like they're learning much dance. It's just sort of people just moving about the floor a bit. There's like nothing spectacular. There's nothing that you need a class for, basically. And then the other thing was there was a chocolate-making workshop as well. So, of course, we have the seasonal activities. It is kind of a tick box of everything that you would normally get in a Hallmark movie. But even if it's a tick box exercise, this is actually okay. I mean, certainly in the dance class, there is what you described as the most hilarious moment in the movie, hands down, because of oh. the one particular person who is... Let's say not quite as coordinated as some of the other members of the class. Okay, so the ending of the movie, I need to compose myself. I don't know if I can, so I do apologise. So the movie ends on a shot of Avery and Brendan romantically dancing. But before we get to them in the middle of this shot, we've got like the extras dancing around. And I have to give a shout out to Blue Shirt Guy. If you're not going to watch this movie, fine, but please run it on till the very last minute. 
because you will get the best extra dancing <laughs> unintentional hilarity i literally ha we had to run it back because I just could not stop laughing <laughs> about it for ages and i'm not doing it enough justice just talking about it you have to see blue shirt guy what i will do is when this episode <laughs> is released on our social media i will send the screenshot of my tv so where i filmed it from where everyone can see it because it's, it's just the best i mean that that guy is the best part of the movie after the dog yeah and i'm guessing that even if they wanted to have better dancing in that sequence because these movies are notoriously shot on very tight schedules they probably just thought <laughs> yeah that's in the can nobody fell over you know, nothing got set on fire. Yeah, let's just print it. Now, when it got to the editing room, they probably thought, what the fuck is that guy doing? But too late now. It's in the movie. And I think it, it does make it a much better movie. And you're right. You don't have to watch this movie, but you have to fast forward it to the end just to see this guy. He's got some moves. I'll give him that. awkward because you're just building up to the the final shot of the movie and it's meant to be like the payoff the whole romantic moment <laughs> and you just get this fun dancing and it's it's the best thing ever it's the best thing i've ever seen in a hallmark film it does kind of undercut the end of it because you, like you say it's just this build-up to like oh it's a lovely lovely ending and everybody's got what they want and it's such a romantic way to take you out of the movie but then you've got this guy who's got no rhythm and no danceability at all who is like front and center just before you get to our romantic couple and you're too focused on the fact that there's this guy who's committing dance crimes in front of your face you don't really think oh yeah oh isn't it nice because you're thinking what what is that guy doing you know wh why is he there i mean obviously he's there because he needs he really needs to be in the dance class because he's got he's got no rhythm at all but the fact that they plonked him just before the final shot is just i'm sorry i'm sorry alien i'll stop laboring the point because you're just going to die laughing if i keep going on about this guy oh there's no harm oh my word it's just <laughs> oh my god i'm just crying now i'm crying with laughter in this one but i honestly i will po post this clip up because you just have to see it you have to trust us on this um another trope i did know we'll move on now is even though this film seems a bit more subdued to the usual hallmark fair and takes more of a dramatic tone as opposed to quirky there is still the eccentric family members so Everyone else is fairly toned down compared. Like, we haven't got anything as extreme as the knitting cult in the castle for Christmas, for example. That's true. But mainly Avery's nephew, oh. who you described as a creepy little sod, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah, because he is this typical kid. He's just too nosy about everything and he's just too perfect and he's just too fucking interested in what everybody's doing, the creepy little shit. And at one point, Brendan's meeting the family and he's like, oh, when are you going to get married? And Brendan should have gone, it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's this subplot where he's basically wanting to make a Valentine's card for this girl in his class. And it's like he's obsessed by this girl in his class. Now, if my daughter came home and told me there was like a little kid like that that was basically 
stalking her, I wouldn't even care if they were like six years old or whatever. Yeah. I would be like, you are a massive red flag. Yeah, I'd be calling the school. I'd be like, there's, yeah. this, there's this kid in the class and he's clearly got something wrong <laughs> with him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, at that age, you would not, the way they've written this kid, at that age, you would not be thinking about like dating and making Valentine's cards. And then there's something about how the girl gave everyone in her class a nice card but she put extra hearts on his, so that must mean she likes him. Jeremy Melton, all over again. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the family just actively encourage this behaviour. They think it's all, oh, look at how sweet this is. Yeah, exactly. Mental. It's like, it's like oh, he's, oh, he's just so cute, and like he, he loves you because you're his aunt, and yeah, and she's like, oh, he's such a, such a cute kid. And it's like, no, no, he's just scary, this kid. He's not cute at all. He's unhealthily interested in stuff that kids shouldn't be interested in at that age there's something wrong with him and you need to call the police <laughs> so if you're not gonna watch this movie at least watch the scenes with the creepy little kid as well as blue shirt guy yeah. see this movie does have moments i'll give it that it's entertained me to a point and speaking of entertaining people this film has been very positively reviewed on imdb i'll just read some captions out Great cinematographer with a great subject. Very good for Hallmark. And great movie. It is very good for Hallmark, I will give it that. I mean, I've set the bar quite low for these sort of movies. And I did have a much better time with this one for various reasons, not all of which was the quality of the movie. But I did actually not hate watching this. Great cinematography... Nah, not really. I mean, some of the locations look quite nice, but that's because the locations look quite nice. The setups are just like, there you go, there's the setup. We're not going to move the camera around a lot. There we go, we're going to plonk people in the middle of it. And it's fine. I, I mean, I'm not saying that it should all be kind of Roger Deakins sort of cin cinematography, because they make these movies for nothing over about 15 days. So I'm not expecting it to look amazing. But for somebody to go on and go, oh, it's great cinematography. Nah, I don't think so. I'm surprised nobody's gone on about the creepy kid, to be perfectly honest. Although there probably is enough on IMDb that somebody has gone on about the creepy kid at some point. It's fine. I'm not going to say it changed my life. I'm not going to say that it's in any way in the best rom-com list that I've ever seen. But I was pleasantly surprised that I wasn't wanting to throw things at the TV during it. Probably because of the fact that, like you say, it's a bit lower key. It doesn't go for that quirkiness that it always tries to go for. The quirkiness is probably the most annoying thing. They are presenting people who are actually reasonably normal and you don't get those, like the knitting circle or the people in Christmas land who are just <laughs> bonkers. At least you get people who are kind of edging towards reality, even though they seem to have jobs that they can just leave when they want to. I mean, they can take hours out to go and meet people and stuff. I'm sure that vets are a lot busier than that rather than just go, oh, I just got to take an hour out. It's like, well, there's a lot of sick animals in the foyer. It's like, oh, don't matter. Just take an hour out. So, so it, it doesn't have that kind of gritty realism, but you're not really expecting that with Hallmark movies. You just have these people that exist in this weird bubble that only Hallmark characters exist in. It's all right. I've got to say, you know, I will admit it's all right, this movie. I'm not going to rush to watch it again, but I didn't hate it. And I will openly admit that out of all the Hallmark and 
wannabe Hallmark films we have covered on this podcast, this was the most tolerable one. I would go out and say that this is the best of a bad bunch for me. So, again, I didn't absolutely hate it and just, like, want to turn it off, and I wasn't clock-watching to see how long was left. I mean, it's not a long movie anyway, no, so it's, not. It's, um, it's not too taxing to watch. And as I say, you know, it has some high points. It does, yeah. You've got to watch it for Blue Shirt Guy, if nothing else. And you don't even have to commit <laughs> to the rest of the movie. It's just a, a very short sequence. But also, it's fun shouting at the kid as well. Every time he comes on and says something, and they go, oh, yeah, you're just such a cute kid. Oh, you're so great. And it's like, no, no, he's not. He's not. Call the cops. There's something wrong with him. <laughs> so on IMDb, this gets a 6.5 out of 10. I think Valentine deserves that over this, to yeah. be perfectly honest. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 0% tomato meter because it's obviously not a critic movie. Fair enough. And there's so much of these films out there. Hallmark is just endless. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is 30%. That's fair enough. I guess these films have got their fans and that's absolutely fine. If you <laughs> like this sort of thing, you it delivers everything you're going to be expecting out of this movie. And it probably delivers it in a slightly better way than most as well. For anybody that normally would rather stick pins in their eyes than watch a Hallmark movie, this is probably one of the ones that you might get away with watching and not end it thinking you want to chuck yourself under a bus. But I'm not going to make that sort of extravagant claim you might still want to chuck yourself under a bus after watching this. But it's not got that kind of cloying sentimentality that a lot of Hallmark movies have got. And they've ditched all the quirkiness as well, so... It kind of works. I'm not going to say that it's going to change the face of rom-coms because it isn't. However, yeah, it's all right, actually. I'm I'm kind of surprised that I'm sitting here and saying it's all right. But yeah, it's fine. It's not something that I would recommend anybody to see. But I didn't hate it. And it's got enough in there that I thought, well, it's not Christmas land, put it that way. I think we've seen worse. I yes. think this was a pleasant surprise because yeah. we have definitely seen worse. Yeah. And every time we agree to do a Hallmark movie, part of me dies inside a little <laughs> bit. But, you know, if we get more like this, you know, may maybe I will um, start lessening my dislike for Hallmark films. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 53 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed our content, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. So, after all this romantic stuff, I think it's time to cleanse the palate a bit with our next episode. We're going back to the Die Hard series of movies. We've done the original, but now we're returning to the series with, surprise, surprise, Die Hard 2. When we recorded our Die Hard episode over Christmas, we promised you guys that we would cover the entire franchise and we are not letting up on that promise. So I'm very excited to finally see all the Die Hard sequels. Obviously, you're going to get my fresh thoughts of these movies because they're all new to me, whereas you will get all the rewatch opinions from Darren as well. Yeah. Die Hard 2 is an interesting one, but I'm going to save it until the episode. So until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,
Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.